To paraphrase Hunter S. Thompson, when you get locked into a serious beer collection, the tendency is to push it as far as you can. Cheers. Son of a bitch! Give me a drink! Welcome back to another episode of the Tap Takeover Podcast. We're taking the show on the road again. We've got a little draft weekend in Green Bay today, and we are sitting down at Stillmank with Brad Stillmank. These guys opened in May of 2012, doing contract brewing through Milwaukee Brewing Company, friend of the show. They opened their actual tap room in October of 2014. So they've been around for a while. They've become kind of veterans on the scene here in Green Bay. In fact, when they opened along with Badger State Brewing, they basically doubled the amount of brewery in this city. So really happy to sit down with you today, Brad. How, how are you doing this morning? Yeah, good. I'm glad you guys are here. Thanks for coming. So one of the questions that we always ask our brewers is, what was your introduction to the craft brewing scene? You know, was there a certain beer that kind of got you excited about craft brewing? And how did that uh, eventually lead you to opening your own brewery? Sure. Yeah, good question. So I think my uh, intro to craft beer was likely through a lot of other brewers brewing beers in particular 22-ounce bottle format. I don't remember remember that there was a particular brand or brewery that caught my attention. I was living in Durango, Colorado, kind of when I caught the the itch for, for brewing and beer. I was going to school for a marketing degree, and I was honestly like one of those kids that just had the change to buy a 12-pack of Schwill, and that was my thing. Like, I just wanted as much beer as I could get. It didn't really matter what it was at the time, but my buddies were all drinking 22-ounce bottles, the fancy stuff that I wasn't, like, able to afford, maybe necessarily, but they were excited about it. So, with that, I decided I was going to figure out how to start making my own beer as a home brewer uh, while I was in school. And that's, I think, really where I picked up the interest of both the hobby of home brewing and beer as a culture in general. That was late 90s. For so was there a particular style that really got you interested in the home brewing or, or was it just the, the process? I think I think for home brewing, it was definitely process. It was just an interesting concept about how different ingredients could mix together to create and then definitely the fermentation side was like blowing my mind. I was like, this is fucking cool. <laughs> um, I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed the idea that we could make something that was going to, that was hopefully going to taste good and be able to share with my buddies the way they'd been sharing some of their beers with me, you know, and just kind of got my foot caught in the fun wheel with that. Just kept going. So so how long were you home brewing before somebody said, hey, uh, Brad, I think you got something here and wanted to take it to the next level? And I guess what kind of beer and is that beer still found in your current lineup? You know, like, so the first beer I made was a red ale. And when we popped the bottle, the you know popped the bottles open of that first batch, everybody that I was around was like, "Whoa, this is really good." It was encouraging for sure. I look back on it now, and it was likely that it was just free beer for everybody, so they were going <laughs> to drink it no matter what. Um, but in any case, it, it got me going, and I wanted to do another batch and another one after that. And it wasn't more than I would say even a month or two into home brewing that I had decided it was really going to be something I wanted as a career. My grandma back at the time could tell I. 
was pretty passionate about this new hobby and she offered as long as I was going to finish my marketing degree that once I was done with real school she'd help foot the bill and pay for half of education towards brewing science and so I did that I finished my marketing degree up in Durango Colorado and then she split the bill with me to go back to University of California Davis for brewing and packaging science I mean while I was doing that I was making relationships with the guys at Ska Brewing Company which was in Durango or is in Durango I should say got my foot in the door there washing kegs for those guys and eventually worked my way up to uh, work the brew house for them and that was that was after school and it just kind of like it was a hobby turned passion turned career at that point so what was that like going to school for this hobby um it was cool because at the time like i said i was i was washing kegs and doing packaging for those guys so it was like as much as they were teaching it was hands-on experience for me as well so the class i was able to take with professor uh, dr michael lewis at davis but he was teaching it all through the internet which back then like we're talking about late 90s i mean there was internet but it's not like what we know now (laughs) so like a lot of these presentations were pretty long-winded to get to download to begin with over the old dial-up and all that but it was a six-month course um, with a very extensive lengthy exam at the end that uh, once i was passed i was i was brewing for the brewery at that point so was Uh, was there was there anything that you uh, learned that you were surprised by i i think it was more technical about process and keeping things clean and whatnot how to clean you know i mean that's really the basis for making beer is being a good janitor so uh, that had a lot to do with it but it was also fluid dynamics and pumps and learning how to use all these things as a home brewer you don't necessarily need to know how to do but for a commercial side uh, just for safety alone and then proper process you need to know so honestly it was a long time ago at this point i'm not sure how much of it you know that i just learned through experience and how much is it was taught but it was a good course and it got me where i wanted to be with air brewery at the time okay so you go from you know small batches and you make that jump to wanting to open up a brewery can you tell us a little bit about that i mean was there a mentor involved did you kind of seek out other advice or did you just dive in well the guys at ska brewing um there are three owners there and all of them i think from the get-go knew and understood that uh, as much as i wanted to brew for them I, i really wanted to make it a career and something that i wanted to open my own with the things that they had done and were doing were i thought really fascinating and i i knew that i wanted to open my own place at some point so those guys always very encouraging and understanding that you know what I was learning under I guess their paycheck for me was you know I was eventually going to leave and go do my own thing it was in 2007 that my wife and I decided it was time to move back to the Midwest hang up my hat uh, as a brewer out there and move here to to open a brewery we came to Green Bay one because Aaron my wife was looking to uh, getting into a nursing career and there were some good schools in the area for that but when we were coming to check out the area we really realized that like there's hinterland and Titletown here for us it was like these are two great breweries they're making good beer they've got good beer culture up here but there's like over a hundred thousand people in this town there's only two breweries coming from durango there was four breweries at the time now i think there's six or seven uh, but we were fifteen thousand people literally in the middle of nowhere i mean the next closest town was like albuquerque which from green bay would be like chicago and there was four breweries all doing wonderful and we're going it's just an underserved market there's more room here and hinterland and Titletown doing a good job. They were pub style for the most part. Now that's changed. They do a lot of production too, but we knew that we wanted to open a production facility and there was kind of space in this market to locate here in Green Bay. Then took another five or six years for us to be able to get the
get the business plan together, raise some funds, be able to somehow start, which is where the opportunity with Milwaukee Brewing popped up. And we jumped on that as a, as kind of a vehicle to make a beer, market it, and show banks that we had something that people wanted to buy. And we had a legitimate business to, you know, lend to. So that took about two years. And then we were able to walk away from the guys at Milwaukee Brewing, which was a great relationship, to be honest with you. We were really fortunate that they gave us a chance to start a company using their equipment. They're now, of course, much, much bigger than they were when we were working with them. And us leaving, you know, opened up our space for them, which they needed at the time. And we had gotten our, our start and the banks were then lending so we could buy this building and the equipment and kind of do it on our own finally. So one of the one of the big focuses on our podcast, especially with our brewery interview series, uh, we like to encourage our brewers to tell their brewery story through their beers. So if Still Mink were to take over the taps at the Tap Takeover podcast, which of your beers would you choose to tell that story? Uh, Wisco Disco is our, is our flagship. It has been since we started the company. I, I suppose that's that's really the beer what's the beer that gave us the opportunity to to have what we have today here in green bay with our current facility it was a recipe that was written mainly to show that we had a beer that had hops and color and flavor and texture um, but it wasn't so extreme that it just fit uh, a small niche of people right it was something that was still balanced it was 5.1 percent i decided i was going to use a little bit of lactose in the recipe to help smooth out bitter notes and make it real creamy finish so it was kind of like it was like complex but approachable for everybody and i think because of that mix it it allowed a lot of beer to move off store shelves and repeat purchase were happening. So as far as a story for our, our company, that definitely speaks to it. You know, since 2014 when we opened the brewery here, we're now up to, I think, 26 or 27 different recipes that we're brewing. We're finding that our coffee porter is quickly uh, taking off. That's Perky Porter. But Wisco still is, is a lead dog for us here. Any uh, any beers from the original home brewing? Any of those uh, still on tap here? <laughs> the homebrew days, you know, I'm sure that a lot of the beers that are on tap here definitely have influence from those days and all the different recipes that I was putting together. I- exact recipes, no, not not really. Other than I guess I would still say Wisco was because that was something that we were brewing just for our family for a long time before we were able to get on board with the guys in Milwaukee and, and do a commercial start with a with a recipe. All right, and if we're doing a tap takeover, you gotta you gotta throw something kind of rare, <laughs> kind of special on the tap for uh, for the beer nerds sure. to get them out of bed. So what what would you throw on tap? Sure. Um, right now we're doing a handful of actually very small batch specialty things. We call it a, our Brewmaster's Notebook series, and it refers to the idea that I'm going back in my notebook, looking at other ideas and recipes, pulling some of those thoughts together, and then creating new beers. So we've done uh, session IPAs called Fluffy Unicorn, and we've done a brand called Problem Hipsters, which is kind of this brown ale, the like this Scottish note to it, but it's like extremely sessionable, super super easy to drink. And today we've got our 6252 Simcoe Red IPA on tap. Um, these are all brands that are super small batch for us. Here. Here and, and work really well if we're taking a, a tap takeover for awesome. sure. Yeah, that's a very interesting name. Sixty two fifty two Simcoe. Is that re? refer to something? It, it does. So 6252 came about as uh, Oktoberfest was kind of in its peak last fall. We were finding that our brands, as much as we had made, I think it was about three times the quantity we had in the year before, it was still selling out of the market in about the same speed. So we knew that there was going to be store shelves and tap line 
wines that we essentially just going to lose out on sales on because we were running out of beer. So we didn't want to make another Oktoberfest or honestly couldn't. I mean, that's a really long ferment and we wouldn't have had it ready in time. But I thought, let's make uh, a version of an IPA that uh, still fits kind of fall time frame. The red IPA can work. It's malty. It's rich. It's a little bit heavier. And then we, we used, and this is back in last fall, we used Mosaic to finish it. It seemed like kind of a danker hop, something that was going to be a little bit juicier, again, time of year type of thing. But what had happened was we were sitting here rushing this brand to market for faucets. And, you know, for us to develop a brand is usually six six months to a year between names and artwork and all this stuff. There just wasn't time for that. In the brewery, on all of our brew sheets, we use batch coding to refer to each individual batch rather than a brand name for a beer. So 6252 was the batch code for that beer. So when it came to tap, we kind of looked at each other and went, well, what do we call it? What do we put on the faucet? I said, well, I don't know. Just 6252 is the number of this code. <laughs> this six refers to 2016 or the last number of the year. And the 252 is the 252nd day of the year. And that's how we code everything so every every beer's got a different code on it we uh we then had great success actually with that mosaic version last fall that one sold out really quick but we had no plans on making more but it was really just a supplement so there was bars and even at this point now there was store owners bottle shop owners saying hey we'd like to carry this brand you're not making it anymore etc etc we knew it was something to bring back for springtime and having the time and opportunity to bring it back we thought okay now we'll come up with a name for it now we'll do some you know some real creative around it we we're going to call it the Sneaky Six, as it's just over 6%, but it doesn't really taste like it, so it kind of sneaks up on you a little bit. We had all that stuff going, and we were going to use Simcoe because we thought, well, Simcoe is going to be a nicer hop for springtime. Uh, it's not so heavy. It's a little bit brighter of a hop, and it'll go good with time of year, but the, the recipe base itself outside of the hop change for the dry hop edition is, is the same. And we presented to our wholesaler network what we were doing with it and they all kind of scratched their heads and said hey brad like we've got a lot of people that want to buy 6252 can you just call it that so we don't have to go through the process of reselling this to everybody and i thought yeah that makes a lot of sense we'll just stick with what people know we'll call it what it is and we'll make the abbreviation at the end to indicate that we're using a different hop for the spring so our spring and fall seasonals to supplement uh, will be the 6252 recipe uh, with a dry hop change depending on the season so just for our listeners you may be hearing some commotion going in the background here so we've got some home brewers utilizing uh, the production brewery brad can you tell us a little bit about that sure yeah we um we really try to embrace home brewing and the home brewing community it's where i got my start i'm still really passionate interested in it i think that there's a lot of education for even somebody like me that's brewing every day as a commercial guy there's a lot of stuff i can pick up from home brewers there's always new ideas and things coming out so hosting homebrew days here at the brewery kind of helps keep us all fresh and relevant um not to mention we've got you know quite a bit of floor space we got a lot of water and drainage it's a comfortable environment especially in the winter time if people want to come in and, and cook up their own beer we you know we open it up for that um, a couple times during the year so yeah i think the guys right now are making a double ipa back there yeah so do, uh, do they bring their own equipment or do you supply anything outside of water hose and a drain it's up to them to bring in all the, all their own stuff including having their their grain pre-milled and everything but you know it's it's fun to see what they're doing what they're coming up with techniques new ingredients all that kind of stuff so uh yeah pretty fun do you think any of them have desires or dreams of uh, getting out on their own professionally? I I would hope so. I mean, certainly it, it, that's what it was for me. I know the guys that are back there right now have pretty solid professional careers outside of brewing. I think they're all doing quite well, but the home brewing is a hobby. is kind of what brings them all together every now and again. I mean, at the end of the day, that's kind of what beer 
is, you know, it's it's a reason for us to all get together and chat as friends. And if if we can do it over a, a kettle of boiling wort, why not? Even better, you know, just just good fun. Well, just to take a peek behind the curtain, it is early in the morning, and we thought it was going to be a quiet morning. Yeah. But you have that event going on, and you actually said you had another a bachelorette party. What yeah. what other events? I guess what what else? Sure. What's going on here all the time? Yeah. Well, if if the production floor is not in use um, as it is, you know, this morning we're not canning or, or, or brewing ourselves this morning so we open up the floor for guys to do home brewing or uh, special event parties we happen to have bachelorette party in this morning but can be rehearsal dinners to baby showers to meetings whatever whatever people are interested in using or renting the space for where we kind of open it up for for people to use it's a fun area to be able to set up and have a party that's very cool very old school to have a, a brewery and a tap room become like a very community oriented thing yeah that's- absolutely i would say one of the one of the more interesting ones we had a baby shower so there's been a bunch of baby showers here but one in particular like their whole theme was the baby is brewing it was like it was really cool the way they had it all set up and decorated everything was neat yep lots of fun stuff uh so we we spoke uh this weekend on our our little uh draft weekend vacation up to green bay here with badger state and they mentioned that they're going to be doing a little collaboration with you guys so we were wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that sure yeah we um we're really fortunate the green bay market and breweries in particular we're all a group of pretty good and and i'd say even tight-knit friends whether it's needing to borrow grain or hops or can lids or whatever it is that one guy's short on the next guy's long on we all are kind of pitching in to help each other with stuff like that we have done an uh, exclusive collaboration with badger state i want to say it was at least a year year and a half ago now where we each took uh, their flagship at the time was a brown ale um and we were brewing my for spring season we both had we're starting to get into barrel aging and kind of the whole program that involves that so we had we had some wood at both breweries so we decided we we're going to fill a barrel each of those two brands let them sit i want to say we sat them for six or eight months and then came together and decided we we're going to blend them did some tastings blended it and we called it the old bakken brown uh, it was a barrel aged kind of blend of our, our two different beers that was a ton of fun uh, currently we're uh, just wrapping up a project that'll debut on may 8th as craft beer week opens up we're doing actually that that brew involves all seven of the current breweries in green bay which is kind of crazy to think of only a few years ago it was two so um, <laughs> we're up to seven as of uh, about this week right now with copper state opening and we're making a, a guava juiced ipa with those guys so the packaging just finished uh, yesterday or the day before we've got that in 22 ounce bottles and draft and that'll go on tap at a bunch of bars and certainly all the breweries in town for, for craft beer week but just fun you know like talking with those guys badger state guys the title town guys hinterland everybody kind of getting together i know you guys said you're gonna go talk to noble roots those dudes were over here helping out just as much as anybody else design recipe decided what kind of hops we're going to use how strong we want it to be you know we were the host for it this year so we're kind of responsible for putting all the raw materials together and, and everything but come brew day everybody shows up and either you're milling in or you're hoeing grain or dropping hops or whatever it is everybody's kind of pitching in to help and then same with packaging the all the breweries showed up and we all hand bottled it all together and wax dipped them and the whole bit and it's a fun project it's an excuse for the breweries it's almost like a play day really i mean it's like sure it's all work but it's kind of like getting all your buddies together just like the homebrew dudes are out there right now it's just you know bringing all the friends together to make a batch of beer and kind of celebrate what we all enjoy doing together yeah can can you tell us uh, specifically what sort of flavors are we going to find in that uh, guava ipa what does the guava do to the the hoppy flavors well so again like just thinking about the time of year and the season and this is you know the recipe development side when we first all meet it's kind of like what season are we trying to fit 
that we've done saisons with this group before. We've done other kind of lighter things, but we'd never really dive right into like IPA as a style. So we knew that we wanted to do IPA one because it's hot. You know, if we didn't do it, we're kind of missing the boat in this market right now. But two, it's springtime, so let's do something that's a little bit more tropical. You know, lighter flavors. Um, so the malt base on it's super light. It's two row, uh, some Cara, and a little bit of uh, light Munich, and then hop on this one. We bittered with uh, Chinooks and then finished it with Azakas and kind of a shitload of Azakas at the end. Um, and the guava was added right at the uh, kind of right at the peak of fermentation. So primary was chugging along and we injected the, the fruit puree right in fermentation. It actually fermented out way farther than we thought it was going to dry, dried way out. Uh, we got 7.3% ABV on it. So it really does kind of have that tropical, almost fruit-like flavor up front with the aroma, um, then finishes with a, a little bit of a bitter kick. The 7.3, I mean, it definitely catches you, but it's not at the forefront. It's a neat beer. Well, I'm getting a little thirsty, so before we break for a little tasting, I just want to touch on your barrel age program. The little I know about barrel aging is a lot of the beer is just going to sit there. So what are your future plans for growing that or in this facility in particular, and is there even room to expand? Yeah, we've got plenty of floor space right now. So our brewery is only you know just three years old as our own production plant up here. We've got 10,000 square feet of space that we intend to take at least five, maybe 10 years to completely fill up with stainless. So in the meantime, while we've got some floor space to work with, we're, we're putting barrels on the floor right now. I think we've got 50 some odd barrels in here right now, which is certainly more than I ever imagined when we were building the place. I didn't think the barrel aging was something I was going to dive into, but having the floor space and the demand from customers when we release these things, it makes a lot of sense that we, we start toying around with it a little bit. We found without a doubt our porter on bourbon barrels has been the fan favorite. So we're making a lot of that right now. What I've got in barrels at the moment is anywhere from two months to just over a year in age. And I'm finding the stuff as we sample out of these barrels, even after a couple months, honestly, I think it's ready to go. Um, so we're going to have to see how, you know, how well we can blend some of these together to get just the right beer, but packaging and making these available for more of a year round type offering rather than a, Hey, we've only got a thousand bottles of this. It's going to be gone right away kind of thing is really the direction I'd like to get to. We just need to develop the program a little bit farther and get some more liquid on the floor before we can introduce it that way. All right, so let's uh, take the break for the tasting and uh, we'll hand it off to Andy for beer news while we get set up and then we'll be asking Brad about his own personal beer cellaring as we're talking about <laughs> aging beers. Back after this. That's right. Welcome to the Tap Takeover Podcast Beer News. The beer of the week for beer news is Hop Debacle by Oso. This huge fruit bomb is an homage to the soft New England style IPAs. Expect a great big dose of tropical fruit on the nose. Papaya, melon, and bursting citrus flavors explode on your palate from the additions of Eldorado, Denali, Citra, and Galaxy Hops. In our opinion, Oso knocked it out of the park with this beer. You can find Hop Debacle at most craft beer stores and at many bars in the state as well. In brewery news, Lakefront Brewery has been retooling its brand, continuing to keep up with the changing market. From a logo update to graphics to beer brands, everything is becoming stronger and more focused. Successful brands live in a very narrow space said Lakefront Brewery brand manager Michael Stadola. Over the next six months, Lakefront fans will see our transformation. Even longtime beloved brands will see an update. River Westine, Fuel Cafe, Eastside Dark, and others will be showing up on shelves this summer with a new look. 
Chris Johnson, Director of Business Development, said, With our 30th anniversary right around the corner, it was a good time to reevaluate our image and identity in the market. Russ Klish, owner and co-founder, said, From our beginnings on Chamber Street 30 years ago to now, our image continues a steady climb upward. This is another great step. We learned a lot about this business and about ourselves. Innovation, growth, and being fresh are keys to success in the craft beer world. We're lucky to have enjoyed all three. Look out for new lakefront packaging to be popping up everywhere over the summer. From bottle labels and six packs to 12 packs and tap handles, Lakefront Brewery is prepping for the next 30 years. There are even more new beers arriving. We are starting a new double IPA series kicking off in July, as well as a new single hop series, said Johnson. And look for our 30th anniversary beer, the Lakefront 30, and a Black Friday Special Reserve. I don't know about you, but I will be all about a Black Friday Special Reserve. In festival news, June 17th gives you three events to choose from. The top of the list is the Wisconsin Beer Lovers Festival at Bayshore Mall in Glendale. This is always a great event featuring breweries and restaurants from all over the great state of Wisconsin. You will find some of the Tap Takeover podcast crew at the physics booth for this event. Stop by to talk beer, sample some beers, and mention your favorite episode and why for a special sampling of choice beers we will be bringing from our cellars. Follow us on social media for the times and special beers we will be pouring. Also on the 17th, Good City is having a live music and beer event at their brewery. Jam to some tunes and enjoy not one, but two special lease beers. The Fermentorium is also having a live music and beer event at their brewery in Grafton. On Saturday, July 23rd is Perkinfest at Cathedral Square. This festival is the Tap Takeover Podcast's favorite Milwaukee beer festival. The Home Brewers Association tents, the great breweries attending, and all the extra special freaking beers that you almost never see make this one of the great ones in the city of Milwaukee. And this has been the Tap Takeover Podcast Beer News. Okay, we're back. Thank you again, Andy, for the amazing beer news, as always. So, Brad, we'd like to get into this tasting. As always, on, on our program, we like to do a live tasting and have our brewers kind of lead us through the beers and, and what we're supposed to be tasting. So let's start off with the, we talked about the Wisco Disco. You guys have a Double Disco on tap right now. So let, let's talk about those flavors. Sure, we do. So Double Disco is a, um, a recipe that's designed around the celebration of our company. Wisco Disco being our flagship and the beer that really got us started, we wanted to take that recipe and get it up just over imperial strength. We're using the same percentages of raw materials, just in higher quantities. And this year's batch turned out to be an 8.4% imperial ESB. Wisco Disco on its own is judged or categorized as uh, ESB style beer. So this would be an imperial ESB. Relatively uncommon as far as style goes. When when this one gets entered for judging, it usually is a better fit as uh, imperial red or strong red, that depending on the category name or topic and this one's finished out this year with uh, citra hop so it's uh, a multi-rich certainly strong and relatively floral red ale or esb yeah really tasty what did you think of this one jesus yeah well i thought it was really light considering like um not light as in bad but like a refreshing okay yeah you know what i mean because it's um i don't know i when i saw the 8.4 i was kind of scared off (laughs) but no it was a it was a good beer it's a little deceiving yeah it's a little deceiving maybe it's that floral that you kind of described yeah 
the Citra finish yeah, kind of helps finish, that yeah. balance. Right? Yeah. Wisco Disco on its own was always designed to be a very balanced beer. That's I think we were talking about that earlier. It's kind of why the, the brand was successful. It's not really extreme in any way. Certainly the Imperial version of it has its edge of extreme, but uh, the overall recipe itself is built for balance. So it, it is a pretty easy drinker, even for its strength. All right, Jim, I, I see you uh, sipping on the, the fruity beer on tap, the uh, the awesome sauce. What, what are you thinking of this one so far? Uh, this is pretty awesome. As our listeners know, I'm a sucker for fruit beers, uh, especially this early in the morning. And right away, I'm getting a lot of the, the fruit notes. And actually, on the bouquet, it's almost lambic-like. Is that intentional? Is there any sour in this? Or you know, it, It's very interesting. It's not, it's not at all. And we get uh, between Untapped and Facebook and some of the, the social sites, we get uh, comments going, great sour, tastes great, love the sour. Some people say, <laughs> it's not a sour. How can you even put it out there as a sour? It's like, it's not a sour beer. We never intended it to be. This is traditional ale yeast, California ale yeast. There's nothing, uh, nothing outside of that going on in this. What I think a lot of people pick up on with sour is really the tart. There's a shitload of Montmorency uh, tart cherry in this. Okay. Um, and that really tarts it up quite mm-hmm. a bit. It's also a blended ale, which is relatively, you know, it's, I guess I shouldn't say it's difficult to make. It's just kind of extra process, extra steps in the brew house compared to traditional ale fermentation. We try and buy a lot of fresh pressed apple cider juice. There's a apple orchard about 10 minutes from the brewery here called Thay's Orchards, just towards Luxembourg. But they've got great fresh pressed cider apples, and so we're buying that um, in big totes. I bring that back to the brewery and then ferment it down with champagne yeast and some pectic enzymes just to help dry it way, way out. So then I guess the process to make awesome sauce, and this is the kind of the complex part of it, is we make a very light-bodied ale, low-hopped ale, ferment it down with some Cali ale yeast, and then we inject the cherry to it. So this is we buy we're buying this cherry as uh, concentrate. So it kind of comes in like in these tubs that honestly it looks like the consistency of honey. It's super super thick. I think oh. it's like 68 bricks or something like that. It's like super thick, but like dark dark red. You know, it's like just like the best part of all the cherries <laughs> concentrated down into, into pails. So we'll inject that into the ale fermentation. Let that ferment down. Of course, yeast picks that up and kind of starts over again. Let that ferment down and then we'll take and blend the finished apple cider juice and the totes. We blend that into the ale with the cherry once we know that we've got a final fermentation on that. We then pass it through filter bright and, and carbonate for package. So it's just a, it's just a different uh, way to kind of beer together. Yeah, because I'm getting that kind of dry champagne totally. uh, on the back of the palate, so that's that yep. really interesting. Yeah, it's got a lot going on. It's like this easy to drink beer, but you know, if you really dig into it, it's actually pretty complex, too. We decided that we were going to start making a beer like this, specifically because we feel like in our tap room, uh, there are customers that will come in here seeking out the IPAs and the porters and the heaviest of the heavy for sure, and we're really proud of that, but they're generally with at least one maybe two other people that are either not beer drinkers or, or wine drinkers or they just want a Coors Light kind of thing so we just were like you know let's make something that can satisfy that person too there's no reason that they should be left out and now that I find that we're making beers that are like that it's honestly the ones that even myself I'm kind of like yep those are easy to drink I'm all over that so <laughs> um, turning into fan favorites here at the brewery too now. So uh, speaking of those IPAs you guys used to have one on tap the Super Kind uh, right. when I first started coming up here 
it. It's an amazing <laughs> IPA. Any plans to bring that one back? Is that kind of in the bullpen for now? It is. Unfortunately, at the moment, it is. Uh, being a smaller company, you know, three years in, so we're not exactly startup anymore. But, you know, we're, we're not a huge brewery either. When you look at a canning business, the minimum orders for pre-printed cans are gigantic, or at least in relation to the size of our company. And when we came to the end of our last run of Superkind cans, we had to kind of make the decision as hard as it was. This brand is a brand that does well for us and does extremely well for us here in the tap room. Uh, we've got a lot of fans of it, but it's just not a big enough brand to reorder on the cans again. And with that, we kind of had to put it on the shelf for a little while and say, you know what, let's let's take on new projects and start making a whole bunch of other IPAs in smaller batches. Again, kind of part of our Brewmaster's Notebook series. So we can do a bunch of things throughout the year that all fit the IPA category, but they kind of, you know, they just let us experiment a little bit more. Certainly we'll come back to Superkind one day. My wife's got a petition already going for people to sign that they can say they want to come back here because she's a huge advocate about bringing it back. Um, so I'm, we I'm will. I'm going to need but, to see that yeah. petition before we leave. I'd like to put my signature down. Yeah, so so it, so in any case, while that recipe as it is, um, is certainly on the shelf right now, just last week we started brewing a beer we're calling uh, Hoppiness. Um, and Hoppiness is the base beer of Superkind as far as malt bill goes. Very light, crisp, only this time we're going to be using mango puree in it. So going back to the fruit stuff, we think that it's going to have a little bit of the tropical mango notes to it. And we're also using some Lupulin N2 Equinot hops in it, which we're pretty excited about. It's a new hop variety and process that uh, Yakima Chief is working on right now. Super, super cool. If you've ever, the best way I can describe this N2 stuff is um, it's like if you ever had a buddy say that smoked weed and you saw him crush up their weed into a powder and like that's like the best of what they've got this is that for hops it's really like the hop companies are taking the hop cone um, they're freezing it with liquid nitrogen they're shaving the the actual leaf off of the hop cone and getting right down to the lupulin glands and all the essential oils of the hop and then they're powderizing that and shipping that to us so we get this like extremely potent extremely strong no vegeted none of like none of the stuff you don't want all the stuff you do want we're using that in this brand called hoppiness so it's going to be a version of super kind just with a totally different twist we do think that that's going to be kind of a big one for us this summer but again that's why we're doing these experimental hop things just to play around with different ipa ideas that sounds amazing yeah <laughs> <laughs> so we want to touch on uh, we want to go back and touch on some of the canning line that, uh, sure. that you're getting into there but uh, first let's round out this tasting and talk about the perky porter okay uh amazing coffee flavors on this do you guys do a cold press edition or do you guys actually throw the throw the grounds right in there what's your process right so for perky porter at its base um it's a pretty standard english porter recipe uh we brew it seven percent and as the fermentation comes to an end we call up our our uh, neighbors over at la java coffee roasters and howard here in green bay they have a blend that they do just for us they'll roast it that morning we go over we pick it up or they deliver it within an hour or so it's ground uh, coarse grind and then we dump it in the top of the tank just like you would a dry hop the grinds saturate and eventually over the course of about a week fall to the bottom of the tank and then we take the clean beer off the top of that for packaging there's no there's no cold steeping it's really just like kind of like french press only having we don't have a little button to push down on the top of the press it just (laughs) is time and letting the grinds fall on their own and that's really where you get like the really super nice coffee aroma to it certainly there's got to be a degree of caffeine in there um, just by nature the raw materials and then the porter is a finish to make it really nice and smooth and creamy so does getting it that fresh uh, help with keeping it sterile when you add grounds directly to B12 
beer, right? I mean, you always... Yeah, there's always a concern for sure. I'm not sure that because they just roasted and brought it over here, we're particularly safe. Um, it probably helps. The side of it that makes me the most comfortable is that we know that we've got porter that's finished at 7%, and so we've got that working for us, just the alcohol in, in the solution. And so when we put the, the grinds in, we don't have anything else that's really going to have a chance to take over at that point. Tastes really good with donut holes, too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice. another good breakfast beer this early in the morning. Right. So uh, let's get back to that canning line uh, sure so when we first started coming up here right when you guys opened you guys were uh, on the cutting edge of the the crowler craze which wasn't even a craze at the time you guys were really right. kind of pushing the envelope there <laughs> so if you could speak to that and and a little bit about your uh, experience with canning over the course of your your brewing career sure yeah so um as i started uh, brewing and packaging for the guys in durango at ska brewing one of their focus packages although we did a lot of bottles there was getting into canning and we canned by hand literally like two at a time it was crazy slow but it was the er, it was early 2000s the industry was just getting into this whole canning thing and Scott was one of the companies that was at the forefront of it then you know we do two at a time there it just felt right to me I understood the the theories behind low to no oxygen and no light uh, and what it could do for our package and our beer as I was brewing it for them and then as we were coming this way Aaron and I knew that when we were going to start the company on our own up here that uh, cans and keg business was going to be the way that we wanted to go, albeit wickedly unpopular considering <laughs> most of Wisconsin isn't into the cans quite yet. We know it's popular in, in a lot of the other parts of the country and we're confident that it will get there. It just means that we've got a big education piece uh, with our customer set to help them understand that drinking beer from a can is about the best you can get. <laughs> so we need to get there. Uh, the crowler stuff, I think that was kind of along the same lines. We were looking at glass growlers and going, there's this new um i don't know if it's technology is it's a new package that's available right and while we don't put our beer in glass commercially like you know bottling um why would we be putting it in glass growlers um certainly happy to fill them if people want to buy them that way um, but if there's an option to do a can version of it that kind of just seemed to fit our our mold really well um the guys at oscar blues had developed a, a small format can sealer and gigantic cans and we thought you know before football season started last year why not get this thing in if, if people want to come in and fill up growlers to take tailgating which they do quite a bit of why not do it in a can so all of a sudden now you're like walking towards the stadium you don't have a big jug to deal with it's just chuck the can in the recycler and, and go in and enjoy the game kind of thing and so that's where the popularity for us really took off was before past season just getting into the crowler thing um, just felt right really we knew our, our package was superior to, to what anybody else was doing so yeah now it's the cool thing well we did have a, uh, a bit of a contribution we, we kind of put it out there for some of our listeners here in Green Bay to uh, to contribute some questions. Okay. So Scott from Green Bay wanted to know, the fact that uh, Milwaukee Brewing Company was canning, did that impact your decision to contract through them, the fact that they were already already had that capability? It is cert- certainly was important to us. Yeah, Like I said, like canning and keg was going to be the format that we wanted to take our business from the get-go. We knew that for sure. Um, and the fact that they had a small format canner and they could do the kegs was like kind of a perfect fit. We got to know those guys. I had 
worked in distribution for a number of years when we first moved to Wisconsin. I should say moved back to Wisconsin. And I was selling MKE beer here in Green Bay for those guys. So I kind of got to know them through that relationship. And then finding out that they had some availability and we could we could can down there definitely was the icing on the cake. It, it just made it all work right. Well, thank you to, uh, to Scott for contributing that question. And if you'd like to contribute questions for our brewers, you can send them in to taptakeoverpodcast at gmail.com. So as far as the, the history of canning, going back to uh, your days at Scott Brewing in Colorado, I, I know that they were on the forefront of the canning industry. Did that Im- did that impact your decision to uh, become a canner yourself? Yeah, there's no doubt. Uh, the fact that I was kind of raised around the raised in the brewing industry anyway, around the idea that the cans were superior package for our, our beer. As we were getting started, that was the direction that we were going to head in. Getting canned for those guys, I mean, that was like two cans at a time kind of thing. Super, super small format stuff. As I was leaving Colorado and having to walk away from my job at Scott and make the move out here to, to Green Bay, those guys' canning business was really growing quite a bit. They were at a spot where it was time to buy a more automated canning line. The guys kind of a year or two ahead of where Scott was at would have been the Oscar Blues Brewery, also in Colorado. Pretty tight-knit group of brewers out west, just like it is here in Green Bay. The guys at Oscar Blues were were outgrowing their original semi-automated canning line. And so Scott made the purchase of that canning line for their upgrade. And Oscar Blues was putting in much bigger equipment at that time. Um, this is all early 2000s, or I should say maybe mid-2000s at this point. Which is pretty cool because when... Aaron and I wanted to get this business started and the canning line up and running here for ourselves to be able to afford a brand new, shiny, awesome canning line. Well, uh, we, we thought maybe that's the route we were going to have to go. Found out that Ska was just outgrowing their used semi-automatic canning line and they were putting in this giant monster of a, of a canning line for themselves and, and what they had bought from Oscar Blues was going to become available on the market. So, of course, we, we gave our buddies back there a quick call and secured their line for our brewery and, and that line now lives here so it's got some pretty cool um, canning craft beer history to it Uh, certainly has been taken care of extremely well very talented brewers at oscar and ska Um, so she runs with her own quirks but at the same time you know she runs well and she does a good job for us here we i call her she we call her annie (laughs) is is your wife okay with that yeah yeah (laughs) yeah all good man you keep mentioning your wonderful wife erin what's her official part of the brewery and how is that uh, relationship with with your other wife here, Annie. Yeah, with Annie here. <laughs> no, so my wife Erin, um, she for the most part uh, manages. Well, she manages me, which is pretty <laughs> darn helpful. But the tap room um, on our marketing uh, side that goes along with tap room and making sure that we've got uh, appropriate parties and we're staffed well, and you know, kind of all the things that go on around the face of the company. Erin's really responsible for. She does. She does quite a job. She's full time uh, registered nurse, cardiac unit over at the Bell hospital we got two kids at home she's in school right now so she's a busy girl for sure to say the least but she does a great job helping out here and definitely a team effort so brad you told us about your early home brewing experiences and you saved a bottle from each one of those batches and yeah. you have them all saved aside from that what does your cellar consist of yeah right now so i guess at first is just a quick disclaimer about cellar stuff i've got a little bit of my own theory on on cellaring beers i love it that we have customers that want to come um, and buy multiple bottles of our releases some 
some to drink now and some to save. Uh, my own personal philosophy is, and, and it goes to any of the beers that we ever put out for sale here, is that we're putting them out for sale because they, we believe they taste wonderful right then when they go on sale. So to save them, it's always a fun experiment and stuff. Personally, I, I don't sell her a whole lot of my own just because it's like I can't sit on it. I just like the way it tastes right now. <laughs> you know, like There's no waiting on, on these beers. And sometimes it's a gamble. Sometimes it works out and you get a really great beer that, that, that grew over time. Um, and sometimes you end up having to throw stuff out. So I, I enjoy drinking the beers immediately. A fresh beer is the best beer in my book. But if I do have to have anything in the cellar, it's definitely going to be a good stash of uh, 120 from Dogfish. And then I've got years and years and years of Bigfoot from Sierra Nevada. Um, just happens to be the one that I think Sierra Nevada when I was really starting out was probably the brewery I was looking up to most and still do just their quality innovation the kind of stuff they do has always really fascinated me I thought those guys were fantastic from the get-go um, and so Bigfoot is is the beer that I, I stash away I usually buy at least one case every year and we've got them going back easily 10 maybe 15 years now um, of Bigfoot in our in our basement um, but outside of that you know that's the only and I don't even drink many of them I just for whatever reason, just like to have a cellar full of Bigfoot. Um, yeah, I just I, I really just enjoy drinking beer fresh. Well, you, you just made a lot of friends at Half Acre. So, yeah. so what what were, what are your plans with your uh, with your brews there? The stuff I mean, up just, on the show. Yeah, you just have them on display there. Just Honestly, kinda... yeah, it's just there on display. There, a lot of people ask me, "Oh, what do you think they taste like?" Blah blah blah. And the the very honest and correct answer is, those probably didn't taste that wonderful then. <laughs> they certainly don't now. Um, those were the first first brews I was ever making. We we enjoyed them and it was fun as a hobby. But you know, it's certainly not stuff that I think we'd appreciate the way we do now. Well, we're gonna take plenty of pictures so all of our listeners can see exactly what we're talking about. All right. It's an amazing shelf full of sometimes failed, sometimes successful. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we just want to say thank you again, Brad, for sitting down with us today. And, and you're an encyclopedia of knowledge about uh, Green Bay Brewing. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Absolutely, guys. Thanks thank for you. coming. Yep. All, All right. right. So for Alex. And Jim. Jesus. And Brad. This has been a solid, non-fail production. Cheers. 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 Cheers.